This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on July 27th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky, and I've been saving something for a while. Back in April, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism took place here in New York City. It featured a panel discussion titled Arguing with Non-Skeptics. The panelists were James Randi. That attracted all the cuckoos. George Robb. Not falling into the trap of thinking the person you're talking to is an idiot. DJ Grothy. No questions should be off limit. No issues are taboo for the skeptic. And me. Julia Galef, co-host of Rationally Speaking, the podcast of the New York City Skeptics Group, moderated. Here's part one. Um, first up, we have Steve Mursky. Um, and give it up, Steve Mursky. Um, next up, George Robb. Coming out, George Robb. George is a multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, skeptic, podcaster, producer, composer, and heliocentrist. He's been asked multiple times to be a featured performer at James Randi's The Amazing Meeting in Vegas. Uh, he also produces a weekly award-winning podcast called The Geologic Podcast, which features humor, sketches, music, and skeptical, free-thinking commentary. He wrote the theme song to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast and his occasional songs with the periodic table, a 118-part song cycle featuring a song for each element, has been described as the first true geek symphony. <laughs> George is considered one of the preeminent skeptic, science, atheist, geek culture, music icons currently living in his apartment. <laughs> well done, George. It was a, a tight race, that one. And our, our remaining two panelists, uh, come on out, DJ Grothy. DJ? And James Randy. So as Jamie mentioned, the topic of the panel is arguing with non-skeptics. And I chose this topic because I suspect that many of us, maybe most of us here today, have found ourselves admired in these debates in which logic and reason and truth are all on our side, and it's not doing us a bit of good. <laughs> you, guys, you guys know these debates. You know what they're like. You, you lay out your arguments. It's, it's perfectly clear. You go from A to B to C. It's just so clear. And then the person you're talking to is just completely unmoved. So um, we're lucky enough to have on stage here some of the uh, best and the brightest, not just in skeptical thinking, but in skeptical communication, uh, in engaging with the public and uh, convincing people uh, of the skeptic viewpoint. So I'd like to take advantage of these seasoned veterans and talk about what they've learned over the years uh, in arguing with non-skeptics, what tactics they use, um, the, what tactics the non-skeptics use and how to cope with those tactics, um, traps you've fallen into in the past, 
um, and how you actually change someone's mind. So to start off, I just, I'd like to know, um, are there any topics that you actually prefer not to debate, um, that you'd just as soon avoid, um, whether that's because they're, um, debating them would be pointless or, or possibly even harmful? Kirk versus Picard is a <laughs> very, very touchy thing. I, I try to avoid. See, already, already, it's already starting. No, sorry. I don't think there should be any subjects that, that I, I know religion tends to be kind of the, the elephant in the room very often um, and when you start debating those kinds of things. But I'm always up for a conversation, which I think is the most important thing to remember when you're having uh, a discussion with gigantic ironic quotes around it, uh, a conversation with someone is to make it a conversation, not, not falling into the trap of thinking the person you're talking to is an idiot because they might believe something idiotic. The, the most idiotic topic in our mind, in, in your mind, in, in one's mind, can be, can be discussed on some level, I would think. And mm. I, I can't think of something I wouldn't want to talk about. I uh, agree. I think no questions should be off-limit. No issues are taboo for the skeptic. But a, a further point, um, I'm not sure, and maybe, you'll, maybe I'm anticipating some further conversation uh, in our panel, but I'm not sure the goal should always be to argue with our cultural competitors. Instead, maybe our target market is the people they're talking to, the people they're trying to persuade. We can talk to those people, try to, try to persuade them as well. And uh, uh, so even at a skeptics meeting, I, I, at lunch uh, we were discussing that at one skeptics group there are a few taboo topics, global warming, politics, and religion. Now, those are three of my favorite things to talk about, right? Uh, that said, I think from an organizational uh, standpoint, it makes sense to say, look, here's our focus. Let's talk about these topics. That's why we're coming together. But if you're talking about challenging the credulous, nothing should be taboo, nothing. I agree with that. Uh, I think that's exactly what I would have said had I thought of it and gotten to speak before you did, DJ. <laughs> yeah, and you'll notice I looked to you in deference and, yeah. I noticed, but <laughs> your idea of deference, I don't know. I have to argue with that. But, um, no, I don't think there should be anything off limits for a discussion of this nature. I think we would uh, stifle ourselves. There'll be some subjects that won't be as amenable to to discussion in that respect, but I don't think there is any subject that should be off limits. I, I disagree just a little bit in that I think it depends on how you feel on a particular day. I mean, if I go to a, a picnic and I meet new people and turns out that they don't accept the fact of evolution, I got to ask myself, do I, do I really feel like getting into this? And, it, you know, it might not be worth it on that particular day. But if you're in a feisty mood, sure, go for it. Have fun. Well, so that actually does anticipate a, my follow-up question, which is, what about contexts? Um, are there any contexts or, or maybe debate formats that you just think are better avoided? I, I've heard some people say that TV is just, that's not our comparative advantage uh, in, in talking about these things. Um, but then, of course, it does reach a wide audience. Um, so what do you, what do you think? Well, I would never debate a creationist. I just wouldn't get on the stage with a creationist. I think that the, the visual 
of the science person and the creationist on the stage together means you've already lost. I understand that Michael Shermer does it a lot, and he must enjoy it at some level. Um, but I, when I give advice to academics who might be faced with the possibility of, of doing a debate, I just tell them not to do it. The person you're debating is an expert debater. They're an expert at rhetoric. They're not an expert in the science because there is no science. And you will lose that debate because you only have an hour or two hours. So just don't do it. And you validate the creationist by arguing with the creationist, right. I think. I think that gives them, uh, him or her a prestige that they wouldn't normally have. But does it, does it build in an excuse then that they can, is it worth them having the ability to say, well, they won't even talk to us? Mm. Is, is that worth the weight of being sort of that's, losing? That's the, the rub on the that's thing, the of rub, course. Right. I, yes. I think it may make sense for distinguished scientists not to debate mm. these uh, cultural questions or these questions with our cultural competitors. But um, their charge, of course, is that the scientists are an unelected elite who close off these important issues from debate. So I, I probably disagree with some of the other panelists. I... Uh, if you're talking about the context of a formal debate in front of an audience, I would love someone steeped in evolution to be able to have a conversation. Now, if it's going to be uh, a debate as opposed to a discussion where people are earnestly inquiring after the truth, um, then maybe you shy away from that because the deck is stacked against you. But I've been uh, uh, involved with a number of debates uh, on... Uh, many of these important questions where the opposition, they're not just looking for the gotcha moment. They actually want to engage. They, you know, they're not all going to pull dirty tricks. So I think it, it gets to the question of context. Um, formal debates, I like them. I, even in the biology classroom, I want, the, I want little Johnny to come with his best creationist arguments. And when that unit of the uh, curriculum is up, I... You know, when, th when that's uh, happening, I want Johnny to say, here's what I believe, and I want the teacher to say, here's what we think the best evidence in science says, and let that kid go home and say, Mom and Dad, I really stuck it to them, because that kind of conversation, I think, is important. Otherwise, they have every right to say, we're being stifled. We're not even allowed to talk about what we know is the truth. Um, I, I think that... Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think the best ideas rise to the top, and I, I have maybe some faith in public debate. Yeah. There, is a, there is a construct of a public debate that can be difficult to deal with where someone knows how to debate, and it doesn't matter what the issue is. They can, they can sort of push their point. Um, I think most people don't get put into that kind of a context. Most of you sitting out there, when you deal with a question of debating with a creationist, it's maybe at a at a holiday a family gathering or maybe on a street corner or wherever it would be where it's not in the guise of you have 10 minutes and then you have 2 minutes to respond and then uh it's it's very rarely set up that way and i think those are very important to be able to 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 open up and talk have very different ideas so maybe it, the 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 cards do tend to be stacked or the deck tends to be stacked against you in a in a debate setting, but not, I, I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from thinking, well, you know, you're a creationist, and I'm not going to talk to you. Because the, the real debate has been going on for 150 years. Right. It's in all the scientific journals. And, but you can't gather that information in this kind of a context. So that's why I'm just very leery yeah, of it. Tough. Well, so clearly, um, 
they do have plenty of dirty tricks that they can pull out. Um, but what if what if a scientist um, were actually trained in debate? Is are these dirty tricks just completely unwinnable uh, against, mm. or or is there some way to actually counter them um, and and thereby take advantage of this platform to get the truth out? Well, it also depends very much on the quality of the audience and the background of the audience. Mm. Uh, you can walk out in front of an audience who will agree with everything you say and disagree with everything that the other person says. So you have to find out how they were selected. For example, years ago I uh, did a program for Granada TV, uh, James Randi, Psychic <coughs> Investigator. That didn't mean that I was psychic. It meant that I was an investigator of psychics, <laughs> but they chose to phrase it that way. And, and uh, I wondered why the audience was a studio audience hardly this size. Uh, probably about 45, 50 people in the audience, uh, studio audience again, and it was being taped uh, with what they call live taping, no editing being done. And um, I wondered why they were so antagonistic to me. They were, you could tell from the, the body language, it's mostly this, this kind of a thing. And you knew that they were not going to accept very happily what you said. But then I found out how they had chosen the audience. There is a magazine, uh, it's similar to, uh, it's pub one published in this uh, country called Time Out, mm -hmm. and they ran an ad in there saying, are you interested in true psychic phenomena? Yeah. Then apply to be a member of the audience when Granada TV tapes James Randi, Psychic Investigator. That attracted all the cuckoos. <laughs> they all showed up. They were outside the studio in droves, most of them with the passes, the tickets that they had, most of them without them, uh, a lot of them without them, pardon me, uh, but they just jammed that studio and stood around the sides of the studio, and they hated my guts. They hated everything I said. So it was stacked against me in the first place, so I warn you about that. Mm. Uh, Julia, I think what, Julia, what you're focusing really on is the science communication question versus just the science education question. You could be uh, schooled in uh, evolutionary theory and be able to communicate that very well in a classroom of students who are ready to learn it. But there are, there's a different skill set that's required to uh, engage people who don't already buy it or who don't want to learn it. And so not every scientist is cut out for debate, but I think there are some scientists or science communicators that we should never say, well, in principle, it's just bad to debate it, Instead, let the good debaters debate it, let the bad debaters research it, and I think that's a, I think that's a good solution. It's also being able to realize that, like they said all the time, no amount of evidence will convince a true believer. So you're not going for the people that believe. You're going for the ones that might have a sliver of doubt. You're going for the ones that aren't necessarily sure. That's, that's always my target audience. If I'm speaking to someone, I'm never going to convince someone that is you know, fully believing in whatever they're believing in, whatever the woo is, but maybe someone's going to hear this conversation that I'm having with this person, and they'll think, yeah, wait a minute, what, what, what is that? How, how does that work? Why is that that way? That always seemed weird to me. And then, in the same way that they preach their wedge teaching, we have our wedge of doubt, and the wedge of doubt is so important, and that's where I think almost everyone's experience in this room, probably, for those of you that might have been believers at one point, it all started with that splinter of doubt where you might have read something, heard something, seen something, heard a conversation, whatever it was. And I think that's what our, our job mm -hmm. often as debaters is, is mm -hmm. just to find that 2%, 5%, 10% of the audience that's kind of 
Hmm? As the puppy face, you know? <laughs> that's what you, that's, ooh, yes, that person, that's what I'm talking to right now. And I ask you to beware if you have to answer a question. If the response starts out as, that's a very good question, that means you're dead. <laughs> because they've already got a prepared answer that goes on for at least eight paragraphs and more, and it's all rehearsed, and they, they know it word for word with the punctuation and such. You know you're dead at that point. That's a very good point. You... <laughs> I have three questions that, that have occurred to me over the years. when I And most of the debates that I run into are... are informal gatherings mm. and um, the first one is do you get most of your information from Fox News <laughs> because we want to know you know what what the grounding in reality is the second question is why do you think that where are you hearing this what has made you think what you do and the third question is is there anything that I can say that would change your mind. Can you think of anything that if I said it, it would make an impact on you? And if, if, if there's nothing, then you might as well just go back to the bar and get another drink. Yes, I heard this from Martin Gardner many years ago, one time when he came up with this really bright idea, what you just said, Steve. Uh, if the fellow looks at you, and uh, if you ask him, whoever it is you're debating, what would change your mind on that angle? If they can't answer that, I mean, that's, that's a very telling question right there. And uh, Martin Gardner came up with that idea, and I, I thank him for it. I've used it many, many times since. And yeah. if they can't answer that question, or if they say, oh, nothing will change my mind, then you've right. won a great point right, right there. I mean, the most famous example is probably Haldane, the great evolutionary biologist, was asked, what would convince you that evolution isn't true or didn't happen? And he said... A, a rabbit in the Precambrian. If you find rabbit fossils that are 700 million years old, I have to go get a new job. But other than that, you know, I'm sticking to what I have here. Or admit that rabbits are older than you thought. <laughs> That's another possibility. <clears throat> so, and, and to have those answers ready, too, because that might get turned around on you also. Well, what would it take for you to not believe that, you know, and be able to say that kind of an example or whatever, whatever the issue is. And that's the first thing you should be saying to yourself anyway as a skeptic when you come to believe something or, or when you come to accept something as being as truthful as it can possibly be under all this. I know we have these caveats that what is truth, but um, that's the first thing you should be saying. Okay, what would it take for me to think something different? Because we all have our biases in some, in some way or another. You know? uh, just one quick comment on, on the context question and should we debate it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Uh, Steve's initial point is, look, if you're in a formal debate in front of an audience, uh, what's, what's the phrase I learned playing spades? Don't send a boy to do a man's job, right? You send a good debater, right? But sometimes you're not debating even to win because, frankly, some of us like to debate just because it's fun. You know, skeptics just want to engage. Like, you know, skeptics in the pub in St. Louis we uh, started a, a new group Last summer, uh, over 100 people, some months, show up at the pub conveniently across the street from the high-rise where we live, and the bartender that she uh, is kind of new age. Well, no, ain't nobody in the skeptics in the pub thinking they're going to persuade her or convert her or get her to join her club. They're just rabid about the fun prospect 
of engaging and debating. So it really depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Form, formal debates, I understand this pushback, this criticism, but sometimes you just want to debate because it's hella fun, right? But on, on our Caribbean cruise that we just uh, completed recently, <coughs> remember the lady with the pink hair? Yes. What was her name again? Uh, I'm sorry. Maria. Maria, of course. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, that, that was an excellent case, something that really turned me around in my tracks. Uh, she turned out to be a Reiki pra- practitioner. Duh. On the JREF cruise. On yeah. the JREF cruise, yes, of all things. And she was also into homeopathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a lot of conversations <laughs> back and forth. And she looked a little distressed. And she didn't show up for, for one day entirely. And then she showed up looking a little uh, um, baggy-eyed and such. She had a very bad night and such. And she sat me down and she told me, she says, you've turned me around completely. Mm. She said, uh, I'm going to throw away all that literature that I've been handing out uh, to my patients, such, and I'm, I'm going to try to get more realistic mm. about it. That's a victory. <clears throat> this is a hallelujah moment, folks. <laughs> I mean, well, not really hallelujah, but <laughs> close enough. Close enough yeah, for all right. purposes. How good luck. It, it should be said, uh, Maria Murbeck runs a blog, you should Google it, Fledgling yes. Skeptic. So this story of her being yes. a believer and turning into a skeptic is recounted on a blog I think we'd all dig reading. Yeah, and we did it. We did it. On that cruise, can you believe it, out in the middle of the ocean. Damn, that's a victory. It's also fun to kind of watch people sort of work themselves into pretzels, too, describing what they believe. Mm. When you get a homeopathist or someone who buys a cold remedy that, that says, well, it's got homeopathy, and you say, how does that work? And then just watch as the noodles kind of coalesce <laughs> and then get worked into this thing. And, and, and I've said this on my, on my podcast recently. One of the best things you can say is, really? <laughs> just leave it. It, it, explain that. And then they'll go, well, because it's, you know, it's the energy and... Really? <laughs> and what happens with the energy? Well, it's coming from, you know, a place of, really? <laughs> and then let them, let them get sort of stuck. And you're not even debating at that point. It's just they realize, wait a minute, yeah, you know. It's George, you should get into show business, you, you know. You, you do this very well. <laughs> really? Yeah. George, I, I think the sarcasm is dripping down off the table yes, and pooling into the audience. Sorry. But, but that actually reminds me of another question I had, which was, do you, do you think that this... I mean, I'm really interested in, in techniques for sort of getting people to lower their automatic defenses that they have against, um, against our arguments. Um, and so I, I would think that the asking questions instead of making arguments um, might be a good way to do that, um, to sort of lead people to uh, a conclusion without them feeling like you inserted it into their, or were trying to insert it into their brain. Um, do, you, do you use that technique a lot, the rest of you? Being friendly. <laughs> is, is so effective, and it might seem counterintuitive. And and there are times that you just want to you want to throttle this person because they're not thinking clearly. But being friendly, and it, it also is nice because that counteracts their expectations of of what you are as as someone who's an atheist personally. You know, it just for me personally, when I say I'm an atheist, I mean the best response I got once I was I was I was in the gym I was working out and had this conversation with someone and said I was going to this Christmas Vespers and he said oh Christmas Vespers are beautiful and I said yeah I I, I enjoy going even even though I'm an atheist and he looked at me and he said Athe- you're an atheist but you're like, you work out all the time <laughs> I said yeah and he said what what do you do when you're sad I'm like what do you do when you're sad 
I said that hasn't, but that was the that was the idea of like an atheist would just be this sad person who doesn't use a treadmill. How, <laughs> how often do atheists get this expression? It must you must have a very sad life. Right. Mm-hmm. You get this all the time. They can't believe that anyone can be happy and be. An, I'm not <clears throat> saying that you should all be atheists. Remember, we're not an atheist organization, right? Right, DJ? Okay, but. <laughs> I'm nodding just as we rehearsed beforehand. Exactly, right? exactly. I, I, I appreciate your responses, yes. Uh, but no, it is true. They really can't believe that you can be happy being a skeptic and or an atheist. They can't believe it. Why would you go through your life doubting everything? No, I'm not a cynic. I'm a skeptic. Let's get the terminology right here. So be nice. Be nice and represent. Yeah, because you know the old saying, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Right. Although I let out an awful lot of vinegar, I admit. <laughs> and you're going to have to have Thanksgiving dinner with a lot of these people, too. Uh, uh, yeah. That's mm. a great point. Well, there, there's the, the, the Phil Plate talks about the Dalton thing. You know, it's be nice until it's time to not be nice. And there is a point where you sort of have to sort of say, okay, you know what, you're not being fair, and, and you can get a little bit more mm. uh, aggressive, perhaps. But initially... I think, I think being just, just nice. Well, so, a boyhood chum of mine uh, many years ago in, in Toronto, Canada, uh, was named Walter Spain, and his parents were, were interesting folks. Uh, one of them was a retired engineer. The male was a, a retired engineer who was very grumpy about life because he'd been fired, and uh, he was in private business now. And his wife wore a hearing, uh, hearing aid in each ear, and that's in days when it looked like the size of a cucumber stuck in your ear with wires coming out of it, you know? And she had the perfect solution to the whole thing. He'd make an argument with her, and he'd screech and carry on, and she'd say, so you say. <laughs> out they would come, and he knew that he, he could... All he wanted, and she wasn't hearing a word he was saying. Mm. So you don't, we don't all have that recourse, unfortunately, but uh, mm. she, Mrs. Spain had it down. <clears throat> Randy's comment is actually uh, also a metaphor for the problem a lot of us engage in when we're trying to get through to someone else. Sometimes they just tune us out. They take out their, their hearing aids, metaphoric hearing aids. And so the question of context is so important. Are we trying to debate someone to change their mind are we trying to debate some, someone to change their minds or instead to have some fun, right? Uh, Martin Gardner, uh, uh, someone a couple of weeks ago shared with me this anecdote. Martin Gardner uh, uh, had a long uh, correspondence with Mario Truzzi, uh, one of the uh, original figures in the uh, skeptics movement. And Truzzi often argued, well, the skeptics are too negative. You know, they're not open-minded enough about the, the believer's claims, and we should really bend over backwards and explore all these possibilities. I think the best skeptics do, but that was his argument, and, and uh, he, he just couldn't believe that sometimes skeptics would deign to make fun of a believer in whatever woo-woo uh, belief. And Martin Gardner said, well, wait a minute. If you're in, in the letters, if you're not trying to change their mind, but you want to change other people's minds who are listening, the best weapon in that regard is ridicule and poking fun and joshing and, and, uh, and that sort of stuff, which I think gives us a bad rap, but it's the context question. Are you trying to change this person's mind? Are you trying to change the listener's mind? Or are you just trying to have some fun because you're at a pub gathering and 
you, you've had three and you want to, you know, butt heads. There's another point here that should be made, I think, DJ. You say to change people's minds. I don't set out to change people's minds. I'm not that ambitious. I only want to get them to think mm, mm. about what I'm telling them or what I'm suggesting to them or outlining to them. If I can get them thinking, if it goes the right way and if they are thinking people at all, uh, I think that they will, and I've had them come to me years afterwards and say, you know, you made a big change in my life. Mm -hmm. You got me thinking about this. And, you know, I've turned around. Wow. Well, these are victories that you cherish, believe me. And if you hear only from a few of them, seven or eight in a year, and that's about the average that I get like that, then you know that you're reaching a lot more people who don't send you an email or a written letter. In many cases, they are handwritten letters mm -hmm. and personally signed from people who think it's that important that they have to tell you you made a change in their lives. Absolutely. But just get them thinking about what you said and ask them to consider it carefully. Mm -hmm. That ridicule point is an interesting one that if you are speaking with someone who is a believer, there might be a common reference point of ridicule, which is a nice avenue to open up a conversation that, you, you know, you could look at some, I always love when, you know, a, a believer will talk about Anubis, you know, ah, sadly, they pray to a dog, <laughs> that's so silly, but you can sort of, that might be an, it might be an in, you know, to, to have a common source of ridicule and you could say, well, you know, that's not that different from what you're, you think, or there are some aspects of what you believe that are sort of similar. What do you think about that? How is it different? Explain to me how it's different. Mm. And there are some answer. things in, in ridicule you've got to be very careful of. Now, I uh, lectured colleges and universities all over the world, as I'm sure you know, and I very frequently, meeting with the academics afterwards, they will drop a comment like, you know, these people who believe in all these supernatural and occult things, they must be really stupid. Mm. Now, that gives me an open door to walk in and really flail them with it. I say, uh, you have a library here? Or let's go out to the local bookstore. And I do one of my book tests. And it's a mentalism stunt that usually blows them away. And they, they, they're just like fish out of water. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said people who believed in these things were stupid. Are you stupid? I just fooled you. And, and they look around and they say, oh, I see your point. And I hope they do see my point. Mm -hmm. People who believe in the supernatural and the paranormal are not necessarily stupid at all. They're just misinformed. And if you can get them thinking again and, and give them a different point of view that they may wish to consider, you can win them that way. And when you win them, you win them solid, believe me. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are certain cases where ridicule is the exact proper response. Example, example. Example. Um, I have a column in the June Scientific American. Poll from Harris, 24% of Republicans think Obama might be the Antichrist. Right, right. <laughs> One of the things I say in the column, it's sort of a, a series of follow-up questions to that 24%. <laughs> And one of the first questions is, do you consider the fact that you think Obama only might be the Antichrist to be evidence of your scientific outlook? <laughs> Example of ridicule? Exactly. I agree. Thank you, Steve. And yet, of that 24%, how many of them hold down jobs and raise families and don't mm -hmm. drive their cars off of cliffs? And, and vote. And, well, and vote, yeah. But, I mean... <laughs> Interestingly, only 22% of the total, and that means fewer than the ones who think that 
he might be the Antichrist, think that he wants the terrorists to win. So there's a small percentage who think that he might be the Antichrist, but still wants the terrorists to lose. <laughs> because the Antichrist is tricky like that. That's right. Uh, of course. Of course. I should have seen that. Yeah. That's just like the Antichrist. <laughs> That's just like... You good detective right. work there, Steve. That's it for part one of the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism panel on Arguing with Non-Skeptics. I'll be right back after this word from the Nature Podcast. This week, how climate change is making marmots fatter and fitter, what a world without mosquitoes might be like, and the link between obesity and diabetes, plus the regular news update. The Nature Podcast on iTunes and at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Tune back in for part two of the Arguing with Non-Skeptics panel for Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 